0: Welcome to PwC's weekly accounting podcast series. I'm Heather Horn. This episode is a continuation in a series of shows dedicated to looking at some of the accounting areas impacted by the coronavirus. Today, I was joined on the phone by Andreas Oll from his home in New Jersey, and we've recorded two episodes on impairment considerations for goodwill and long-lived assets. This episode focuses on fair value And if you're interested in more on this topic, look for the companion episode where we go back to the basics. Thanks so much for joining me again to continue our discussion of the impairment models for goodwill, indefinite lived intangible assets, and long-lived assets. And we spent our last episode going through the basics of those models and helping people think through some of the considerations if, if they're dealing with a potential impairment at the quarter end. But in that discussion, one of the key things we talked about was the use of fair value, and it's obviously very important. So I wanted to continue our conversation, but focused on some fair value considerations. Why don't we start things off then by talking about the concept of fair value?
1: Sure, Heather. There's a couple of key things to keep in mind when thinking about fair value. I think the first one is just that fair value is from a market participant's perspective, so which that may or may not be the same as the, uh, as the company's perspective it's an exit price notion so it's a reflection of what the asset could be sold for and that's even if there's no present intent to uh, to sell the asset it's based on what's known and knowable at the uh, at the measurement date which particularly at a time when things are changing very quickly it's important to keep that standard in mind Uncertainty is just inherently part of the game when you're dealing with fair value measures. And so what the standard tells you to do is that the estimates of fair value, they should reflect the best information that can be reasonably obtained in the current circumstance. Finally, estimates and model inputs really need to be calibrated back-to-market data to the extent that it it exists.
0: And one point I should have made earlier is I actually had Tom Barbieri and Chris Merchant on last week, talking broadly about the concepts of fair value, but then really focusing in on fair value in the context of financial assets. And so today, we're going to talk about that in the context of, as I said, goodwill Indefinite life, intangibles and long-lived assets. So just um, in case our listeners are wondering why we're covering the same topic again. So so then Andreas, what are some tips or things to think about if companies are considering um, or are determining fair value estimates?
1: Sure, so I think companies are obviously contending with a fair amount of uncertainty right now when trying to come up with fair value. What, what, one of the things that I think is helpful is to uh, think in terms of scenarios rather than trying to compress all of the things that are going on in the world into one single projection. While we'll discuss discount rates a bit later, because discount rates need to be calibrated to the riskiness of the cash flow forecast, it's much easier to derive an appropriate discount rate when the risks embedded in the cash flows are transparent, which is more likely to be the case if you have multiple scenarios. So this is certainly an advantage of going down the path of a scenario approach.
0: So then Andreas what would a scenario approach look like?
1: So it might be helpful just to do this in terms of a uh, an example. So a company may determine that its financial projections might vary quite a bit depending upon whether or not the measures that governments are taking to uh, control the spread of the virus are effective and or how long they will be in place. So coming up with some sort of a base case scenario that uh, maybe is what management thinks is the most likely scenario of how long that's gonna persist and how meaningful the impact on the business will be. And then thinking about a scenario or two that are more optimistic than that, and maybe a scenario or two that are more pessimistic in terms of the length and severity of of the impact. So, so then once you have these scenarios, you would assign probabilities to them and then probability weighted to come up with a single forecast and be benefit of that is that it's much more transparent kind of how you got to that forecast than versus if you just tried to boil it all down to one from the beginning.
0: So then, Andreas, just one side question, how should companies think about subsequent information when they're making these assessments? So let's say you get into April and you have maybe more information about what's going to happen.
1: Yeah, so again, the standard says you're supposed to look at what is known and knowable at the measurement date. And kind of the concept there is that if someone were looking to acquire the reporting unit, say, and they did a standard level of due diligence in connection with that uh, acquisition, what information would they have factored into the price at that time? And so, when things happen subsequently, it's always a bit of a challenge in terms of well, how much of that was reasonably foreseeable at the uh, at the measurement date versus what is genuinely something that's new that uh, you know couldn't have been reasonably foreseen. Ie, a buyer wouldn't have factored it into their uh, their price at the measurement date.
0: Well, we're recording this on March thirty first, so maybe the advice for companies is. If you're dealing with these issues, try to do it soon. But um, the information you have, so then. Going back to the calculation, I know one of the approaches companies can take is what's called a market approach um, in terms of determining fair value. So can you just briefly explain what we mean by that and then any specific considerations?
1: Sure. So some companies use a market approach for determining the value of a reporting unit. And basically what that means is you're selecting some financial metrics. In a lot of cases, it's uh, it's EBITDA, and then you're seeing, well, at what multiple do other comparable companies in the market trade? So are they trading at say 10 times EBITDA? Well, then you would apply a 10 times EBITDA multiple to the forecasted EBITDA for that particular reporting unit. This obviously works best when you have um, sort of pure play comps for um, the reporting unit that you're trying trying to value. One of the challenges you have with that approach that we typically don't have is, in light of the current level of uncertainty in the marketplace, a lot of companies have withdrawn their their earnings guidance. So analysts are having a much harder time coming up with estimates of, of forward EBITDA as a result. So, And you couple that with historical EBITDA may not be a great metric right now, just given that it's probably not a good indication of certainly what EBITDA is going to look like, at least in the next few quarters. So while the standard certainly encourages companies to use multiple approaches to come up with fair value, so say maybe a market approach and and an income approach, um, that might be challenging in this uh, in the current environment.
0: I know another question we're getting, especially given the current market conditions, is what if a company wants to change its fair value approach in the period? Is that permitted?
1: Yeah, the standard certainly wants you to use the best approach available to come up with the best estimate. So changing the methodology, or maybe if you were using more than one methodology, changing the weighting is, is something that occurs as uh, maybe more information is, uh, is available to uh, perform one, of the, one or both of the methods. Uh, the thing to keep in mind is that that would be a change in estimate, and that that is something that if material does need to be disclosed.
0: Why don't we move on then to another area where I know we've been getting a lot of questions, and this is on control premiums. And so can you maybe start by explaining what the concept of a control premium represents?
1: Sure. So at at its core, a control premium results when a market participant is willing to pay an amount over the current market price of a publicly traded company in order to acquire a controlling interest in that company.
0: So how does this then intersect with goodwill impairment testing?
1: So market cap reconciliation is a common technique that people use to assess the reasonableness of the uh, fair value of the reporting units. So you sort of add up the reporting unit fair values. You compare that to the market cap. It's typically higher uh, because your market cap is a non-controlling basis, whereas the valuations of the reporting units are on a controlling basis because you're talking about selling the reporting unit as a whole. So the control premium is a common way to bridge the gap between those uh, between those two amounts.
0: But then in the current environment, I'm sure there are specific challenges. So what should companies look out for?
1: Yeah, well, there's a number of pitfalls to watch out for when you're dealing with uh, control premiums. So Appraisers will sometimes use multi-year average premiums for announced deals in the same sector, and then apply that average. That that has a number of challenges. First of all, you know, a premium that someone paid for a business, even if it's in the same sector a few years ago, may not be all that representative of what somebody might uh, might pay today. In addition, uh, even if the company's in the same sector, you have to be sure that they really are comparable. They might be different stages of growth, for example. Another thing that you really need to watch out for is often companies in the same sector have very different capital structures. And so when when people compute observed control premiums, they tend to do them on an equity basis. And so if you have two companies that are identical, but one has a lot of debt and the other one doesn't, uh, if you paid the same price to acquire the entire company, i.e. its enterprise value, you would have very different equity control premiums for, uh, or said differently, you'd have a much higher equity control premium for the company that has lots of leverage versus the one that has very, very little. So you just have to make sure that you adjust for leverage when calculating historical premiums that you think might be representative for the reporting unit in question.
0: And then, Andreas, those are pitfalls. How about best practices?
1: So the first thing I would say is just that you know obviously the larger the gap between uh, the market cap and the value of the uh, reporting units that's been calculated, so i. e the larger the control premium, the, the, the more support you need to have for the assertions. So uh, you know the most common driver of a control premium is that a buyer is willing to pay a premium because they expect to be able to realize synergies by virtue of gaining control of the company. And so There's an organization called the Appraisal Foundation. They created a paper a few years ago, and it, there's a link to it in our in-depth publication that's uh, come out recently. That's a good discussion of how synergies drive control premiums, documenting the nature and the amount of the synergies that, uh, that could be achieved and how sustainable those are, i.e., they're not just a one-time effect. There's something that is expected to persist. And then translating that into value is, is what you need to do. And typically that's a function of saying, I have X dollars of synergies that are expected to persist well into the future. And then applying a multiple for the, uh, you know, similar to what we talked about in the market approach a moment ago, a multiple that's representative of the industry, where you multiply those two things together and you get a dollar amount of premium that somebody would be willing to pay, which you can then obviously turn into a, uh, a percentage. But other thing just to think about is, particularly if the premium is large, you want to make sure you understand why these synergies haven't already been somehow realized, why why hasn't the company already taken steps to unlock this, uh, this value? A final consideration is that if there is a significant difference between the market cap and the fair value of the reporting units, this might be an indication that the company's cash flow projections may be too optimistic and need to be revisited. And again, the larger the implied premium, the more likely that is to be the case.
0: So why don't we move to our next topic, which is another area where I know you've been getting a lot of questions. And this is on the discount rate assumption in fair value modeling. So can you start things off by talking a little bit about discount rates?
1: So conceptually what a discount rate represents, it's the expected return that an investor would want to achieve from an investment. It's dependent upon the perceived risk of that investment. So Said differently, it's really the probability that the actual results of the uh, performance of the company will differ from what's expected at the time of the investment. In theory, remember that investors are really only expecting to be compensated for risks that they can't diversify away. In a discounted cash flow model, the, the discount rates are often one of the most significant assumptions that drive the the overall value of the, uh, of the reporting unit. So the selected rates should reflect the riskiness of the, uh, of the cash flows. Um, in practice, the best thing to do is to make sure you have expected cash flows, in which case you can use an unadjusted WAC weighted average cost of capital as the discount rate. Scenario approach you mentioned earlier is one way to come up with expected cash flows.
0: So then, Andreas, how should companies think about this discount rate in the current environment?
1: So the the discount rate used should reflect the market and other risk factors associated with achieving expected cash flows. And it's critical that um, you update the discount rates at each measurement date to appropriately reflect the current market conditions. There are a number of market inputs in determining the appropriate discount rate. And some of them, including the uh, risk-free rate and the cost of debt, are readily observable and have moved significantly in the last couple of months, generally not in a very favorable direction. On the other hand, the cost of equity is uh, the components of that are less observable, but in light of what's going on in the market, in all likelihood, they've increased for most sectors of the economy. In times of uncertainty, some practitioners add a company-specific risk premium, also known as an alpha, to the discount rate. Implicitly, what they're acknowledging is that the cash flow forecast may not represent expected cash flows. So, the challenge then is how much alpha is warranted in the in the circumstances. Uh, there's an organization called the International Valuation Standards Council that uh, issues the international valuation standards and they provide some helpful guidance um, in this area. And basically what it boils down to is that the alpha should be calibrated to the degree to which you think that the cash flow forecast deviates from expected cash flows. And you're trying to do that in as quantitative a way as uh, as possible so you know how much alpha to uh, add to the discount rate. So at the end of the day, adding the alpha doesn't really absolve you from having to get the forecast to be expected cash flows.
0: So then, Andreas, let's go back to the International Valuation Standards Council. Is that the organization that you are the chair of?
1: That's right. I chair the um, business valuation board at the uh, at the IVSC and and sit on a few other boards there.
0: All right, so you're giving us first-hand knowledge then in this discussion.
1: That's right, straight from the trenches.
0: All right, and definitely people should look for these standards then. All right, so then Andreas, any other insights for our listeners?
1: Yeah, one one thing that um, sometimes people get confused with is the uh, the concept of distressed markets, particularly when there's been a significant decline in market cap. And so, I often get questions as to whether the uh, sharp decline in the in the stock market is an indication that uh, there's distressed transactions, and therefore, it's not reflective of uh, the fair value of the company. So the Fair value standard in GAP does uh, provide for a concept of distressed transactions and that if a transaction is indeed distressed, that you can set it aside. However, it makes very clear that distressed markets can't be ignored. So distressed transactions are not transactions that necessarily have anything to do with a distressed market. It has more to do with the circumstances of the specific transaction and often of the seller. Therefore, it's a pretty high bar to be able to assert that uh, a particular transaction is uh, is distressed. But asserting that the market as a whole is distressed really only works when there's really very little liquidity. And that's not the circumstance we're facing right now.
0: Andreas, how does that concept of distressed intersect with the concept of disorderly that we talk about um, sometimes with financial instruments? Or is it the same concept?
1: Well, I, I think the... The concept in the FI world is that you can have a disorderly market where, when when liquidity starts to dry up for certain types of instruments, the volume of trading goes down substantially, and so the sort of the pricing mechanisms start to function fundamentally differently than they normally do. That that's just not the case in the equity market. In fact, we have the opposite right now. That in recent times volumes have been at record levels. So there's plenty of liquidity in the stock market right now. So that's really not a concept that applies here.
0: Okay. So then, Andreas, how about though going back to the topic we were discussing earlier on control premiums? How does the concept of distressed markets intersect with that?
1: Well, I I think what I would say to that, Heather, is just that I don't think you can explain a large control premium solely because of turmoil in the, uh, in the marketplace. You know, what tends to happen in, in a down market is fewer transactions happen. And it's really only the transactions that have the strongest value proposition that end up closing in this kind of an environment. So that concept we talked about earlier about being careful about extrapolating other deals to your circumstance. Is probably more applicable in the current environment than would normally be the case.
0: Okay. If people are listening and have follow-up questions, what are some good places to go look?
1: Sure. There's a couple of places you can look. So we have the PwC business combinations guide. Um, We also have our fair value measurements guide, which provides a lot of guidance around fair value for many different types of uh, situations. Uh, we've had a number of publications, including our recent in-depth covering COVID-19 questions. There's the Appraisal Foundation document that I mentioned earlier for control premiums. The AICPA a couple of years ago published a goodwill guide that has a fair amount of guidance around how to uh, perform the impairment test, including it has some valuation guidance in it. And then the aforementioned IBSC standards, which have some useful guidance on a number of areas, but in particular, how to think about the interplay between forecasts and the discount rate.
0: And then with that, I guess we'll wrap up for today. And Andreas, I always enjoyed talking to you about accounting, but I think particularly this topic, knowing your background evaluation, it's really nice to hear your insight and sort of firsthand knowledge. So thank you.
1: Sure, happy to help.
0: That does it for today's episode. I also encourage you to check out the podcast I recorded last week, with Tom Barbieri and Chris Merchant. And as we work to provide coverage on the latest issues affecting your financial reporting in the current environment, we'll be releasing new episodes more frequently. Join us here again next week when we focus on topics including disclosures and revenue. So that you never miss an episode, subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'd also love to hear from you, so write to me at heather.horn at pwc.com or to stay up to date on the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved.